Hi, everybody. Before we get to this weekend's teaching, part four of our mini-series, Grant Us Wisdom, Lord, I just want to take a moment to let you know a couple of things. First of all, at the end of today's teaching, Clyde invites us to join together in communion. If you are listening during a commute, it's probably not conducive to joining in, but if you are able, we invite you to gather some crackers or bread and some juice or wine as we come to spiritually receive from Jesus in these elements. If you don't have elements available, I invite you to take a meditative moment with us. Maybe even imagine yourself participating. No, it's not the same, but our minds are powerful and the Spirit of God is not limited by our limitations. We trust that even in the intangible and ineffable, that Christ will feed us. Secondly, I want to invite you to visit southviewchurch.com viewpoint. There you'll find a collection of different resources and upcoming events and ministries to help draw us into the life of our community, both on-site and online. This week's viewpoint contains a family bike safety course, an upcoming child dedication, a baptism class, and more. And I want to encourage you to find and connect with us on Instagram at at SAC Calgary and on YouTube at youtube.com slash C slash SAC Calgary. Links for these are down in the show notes. As we often say, and is truly our prayer, we hope that somewhere in these links and descriptions, you find a next step for yourself into the richness of life together as we seek to learn from Jesus. Now, as we come to this week's teaching, hear the words of this weekend's collect prayer. Almighty God, your Son, Jesus Christ, is the way, the truth, and the life. Give us grace to love one another and walk in the way of his commandments, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Hello, friends. So glad we can be joined together as we continue in the teaching series that we've called Grant Us Wisdom, Lord. But as is our pattern through this entire season of Easter, the high point of this liturgy will be the meal of communion that we'll receive together in all of our different gathering places after we look at God's Word. And today, as we continue in our teaching series, we're considering the topic of abortion. Because our faith should have something to say about the very serious moral and ethical issues that concern our day and nation. I believe it should, and I believe it does. So as we begin, let me mention the special abortion cases that we'll not be addressing in our study today. I'll not be speaking to the specific cases of rape, incest, abortion to save a mother's life, or abortion due to fetal abnormality, because each of those requires special attention and a thorough consideration of the arguments for and against that we really don't have time to address today. And since these really special situations represent a relatively small percentage of all abortions performed, in fact, most estimate it to be somewhere around 1% of all abortions would be included in those categories. We're just going to leave the discussion of those specific situations to another time. 
So in our time today, we'll be considering what is sometimes referred to as elective abortion, non-therapeutic, non-required abortion. And I'm going to take more time than usual on this topic today. But before we look to the scripture for guidance, just want to say a word to women who have had abortions and to women and men who may have encouraged or even demanded it. I know there are many of you with us, and I'm so glad you're a part of us, and you're not alone. And I realize that a message on abortion is likely a very painful one for you to hear. And I want you to know that my aim is not to make you miserable, it's not to shame you, or to ignore your pain. And even as we talk about this topic, I hope you can be receiving, savoring, really, and resting in the forgiveness and unconditional love of God that's offered to you through Jesus Christ. Okay, so to begin with, how did we get to this point regarding abortion here in Canada? And some of the Canadian facts, maybe you're aware of this. It was in 1988, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled in R versus Morgenthaler that our existing laws restricting abortion were unconstitutional because the court ruled it violated a woman's right to life, liberty, and security of the person. And therefore, now, Section 223 of the Criminal Code of Canada defines a human being as a child that has completely proceeded in a living state from the body of its mother. So according to our criminal code, a child in the womb is not a human being or person. And that's why abortion is permitted throughout all nine months of pregnancy for any reason, really up to the moment of birth. And just to give you some sense of the number of abortions from the 2019 statistics, as far as birth in Alberta, there are about 52,000 that year. And regarding abortions that were performed in a clinic or hospital, there are about 11,000. So roughly one out of six pregnancies resulted in abortion. And as far as abortions in Canada that year, there were 83,576. And globally that year, there were 42.3 million abortions. So abortions by far were the greatest cause of death, and they really are every year. Really, by contrast, 8.2 million people died from cancer that year. Which could all lead to some asking, so why would so many followers of Christ still oppose elective abortion? And for most who oppose abortions, they do so believing that life is a gift from God. And, and truly, they don't come to their conclusion just based on Scripture. As one author put it, typically, they point to the incredible development of unborn children in the womb as a demonstration of that gift from God. They point to the reality how by the second month, the end of the second month, the unborn have all the characteristics of our own bodies kind of in miniature. They've got toes and fingers, eyes, ears, a mouth. And they also consider that the unborn at three months are sucking their thumbs. It's when movement happens. And, and so they therefore say, how we, can we think that this is 
simply a collection of human tissue. And they also note that there's a price to be paid for having an abortion that many are not really willing to talk about. And they see that many women have emotional scarring from abortions, especially when they later choose to have children. So they believe we need to acknowledge that abortion is terminating the life of a developing child. It's stopping the heartbeat and destroying a brain that's already active that it's truly a destruction of life. Okay, so what does Scripture say? What guidance does it give us regarding how we are to view abortion? Now, there are many different arguments put forward in support of abortion uh, by those who are pro-choice and really can't consider all of them today, but I want to consider what I think is a central question or argument of both the pro-choice and the pro-life positions. Because the central question that really informs every other question is, is an unborn child a human person? I mean, for example, one of the pro-choice arguments is that a woman has a right to do what she wants with her own body. In other words, she has bodily autonomy. Now, even those who hold a pro-life position believe in bodily autonomy. But as is the case across society and really in all of our laws, my bodily autonomy does not extend to me being allowed to wound, hurt, or kill another person. Okay, so there are limits to bodily autonomy when another person is involved, even if the other person is unborn. Okay, so again, what guidance does Scripture give us on this question? Is a preborn child a human person? And our answer to that question guides and forms how we would respond to the other questions regarding abortion. So this, again, is really the central question. Now, certainly, to answer that question, we could look to arguments from natural law or to positive judicial law. We could look to philosophy and other sources. And truly, you can find some great books and resources that do just that. But for us today, I just want to consider how Scripture would guide us in answering that question. And clearly, Scripture isn't authoritative for those who don't want to submit to Yahweh, the God of Israel. I completely realize that. But we're approaching this topic today as followers of Jesus, asking what guidance does God's Word give us on this issue? Okay, so let's continue by asking, what Scripture would a pro-choice individual likely point to in support of their position. And I think there would be two main points a pro-choice individual would make regarding Scripture. I think first they would say, well, Scripture doesn't talk about abortion, at least not specifically. And also, we have no teaching from Jesus specifically about abortion. And both those statements are true. So does that mean we have no guidance on this topic from Scripture? I mean, as we'll see, I don't think that's the case because I think Scripture does give guidance 
on how we're to view an unborn child. And, and let me just note in that way, regarding the lack of teaching from Jesus on this topic, let's be aware that there are many important topics that we don't have any teaching from Jesus in Scripture. I mean, for example, incest. We don't have any teaching from Jesus about incest. But that doesn't mean that the topic can be ignored or really should be viewed somehow as unimportant. Okay, but the primary biblical passage that I think those who are pro-choice might point to is Exodus 21, which deals with the punishment for unintentionally injuring a pregnant woman. And I really want to look at this passage because it is often brought up regarding abortion. And, and here's the context in Exodus 21. God has just given Moses the Ten Commandments for the people of Israel to follow. So they've been given, for example, the Sixth Commandment, thou shalt not kill. Okay, and then in Exodus 21, God gives guidance to Moses on what the consequences are when one person intentionally kills or injures another. And so it says in Exodus 21, if someone strikes another person and they die, then they too need to be put to death. And then just a bit, a little bit later than that, it says this in verse 21. And as you hear it, remember, friends, this is the word of God. And we read in verse 21, when men strive together, and by that meaning, when men are fighting each other and really unintentionally hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, and by that meaning it's miscarried or birthed suddenly, but there is no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fined. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life. Now, I want to read this because some would point to this passage and say, look, there's an example. The only life that is really considered here is the life of the mother. The life of the unborn or miscarried child is not really a factor in this. But actually, that isn't the case. In fact, many even ancient Jewish scholars point to this passage and they say the harm that Exodus 21 refers to could include both harm to the woman and harm to the child who, in these words, comes out of her. It really could be seen either way. But really, even so, in either case, this passage is really dealing with unintentional harm that is caused. It's not in any way speaking of intentional abortion. So really, I think we could say that on its own, Exodus 21 doesn't definitively answer our question either way about the personhood of a child in the womb. But you read this passage, and as you reflect on perhaps other Old Testament passages, you kind of wonder, so how did the ancient Jewish scholars understand this? Even this passage here. What did they think and teach about abortion? Well, we know that the Jewish Talmud, and the Talmud, again, was a Jewish commentary, an ancient one, on scripture and rabbinic law. And in the Talmud, in Sanhedrin 57b, it specifically states that abortion is a capital crime. And so therefore, in light of Exodus 21 and other texts, traditional Jewish law holds that the preborn child has a right to life. 
just as strong as a mother's, except when that child poses an imminent danger to the mother's health. That's what the ancient Jewish scholars believed as they read Exodus 21 and the Old Testament. Okay, so then we ask, all right, so what about those who hold to a pro-life position? What scripture would they point to for guidance regarding how we're to view abortion? And I just want to consider two guiding principles from scripture that are typically brought up. Okay, so a first guiding principle is how scripture talks about a child in the womb, an unborn child. Because we know this. We know that scripture uses several different Hebrew and in New Testament Greek terms to refer to an unborn child. I just want us to consider the main three of them. I mean, one of the words that's used in the Hebrew is ben, ben. And ben simply means child, children, or even a son. And the, that term is used a hundred times in Scripture. And one example would be in Genesis 25. In Genesis 25, it describes Jacob and Esau in their mother's Rachel's womb. And it says this in verse 22. The children, that's a Hebrew word, Ben, struggled together within her. Okay, and now that same Hebrew word, Ben, is also used to describe Abraham's son Ishmael when Ishmael is 13 years old. Okay, so what? Just this. The same word is used to describe an unborn child and an adolescent child. Both are viewed and described as children. Okay. Okay, then we look at a second biblical term. A second term in the Greek is brephos. And brephos just means baby. And so in the Gospel of Luke, for example, brephos is used to describe Elizabeth's unborn child, John the Baptist, leaping for joy in her womb when she's told by Mary that Mary is pregnant. Okay, and then right in the next chapter of Luke, the angels tell the shepherds, that they will find a brephos. They'll find a baby, Jesus, wrapped in swaddling cloths in a manger. Okay, so again, the same Greek word is used to describe both the unborn and a newborn. Okay, and then a third biblical term in the Greek is huos. Now, huos simply means son. And right at the start of the Gospel of Luke, in Luke 1.36, we read this. Your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a huos, a son. Okay, and then two chapters later, at the baptism of Jesus, God the Father says of Jesus, this is Luke 3.22, you are my beloved huos, my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Okay, so once again, the same term is used to describe a newly conceived child in the womb and an adult child, the same word. Okay, so with all three Hebrew and Greek terms, an unborn child is referred to with the same personhood as a child who has been born. There is never a question in Scripture about the personhood 
of an unborn child. They're treated and spoken of with the same respect, the similar identity as a child who has been born. Okay, and then we think of other biblical passages where we read of a similar view taking regarding a preborn child. For example, we listen to the words of God to the prophet Jeremiah, where God says to the prophet Jeremiah, this is Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. Okay, and then we think of the words of the psalmist, where the psalmist wrote these words in Psalm 139.15. For you formed my inward parts, Lord. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. And then we go to Paul's words. Paul's words in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 15. Paul writes this. God set me apart before I was born. Okay, so these passages also give a clear sense that the child in a womb is a person. It's a person who's known by God. Okay, now we know that the predominant view in our culture is that human life doesn't begin until birth. Until that time, the embryo or fetus is simply viewed kind of as a mass of living human tissue. But as we see in these passages, the biblical view is that God has formed a person and continues to form that person from the moment of conception. Okay, so that I think gives us one guiding principle in forming how we're to view children in the womb. Okay, but then added to that, in fact, dramatically emphasizing that point is what the Bible teaches us about the uniqueness of we humans right from its opening chapters. And this is a second guiding principle for us from Scripture. And I'm going to need to unpack this one a bit. So let's go to Genesis chapter 9. In Genesis 9, God says to Adam and Eve there these words. This is in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Okay, now that, that is a grand theme that's carried throughout Scripture that God has uniquely created we humans in his image, in the Imago Dei. So what does that mean? It means this, friends. It means that no matter who you are or where you're from or what your record is, it doesn't matter what you've done in your life. It doesn't matter how low you've gone. Every human being, distinct from all other species, is made in the image of God, can reflect God, and can be in relationship with God because of that. Therefore, there is a rock-solid, objective, really irreducible glory and significance and value and worth about you and about every human being and about every one of us. C.S. Lewis put it this way, there are no ordinary people. <laughs> and he was referring there to the image of God. In fact, Lewis went on to add in that section of what he wrote, you have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations and civilization, these are mortal because they're going to end. 
and their life is to ours as is the life of a gnat. <laughs> it is mortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, exploit every day. And with the image of God then, there are implications then for civil rights, human rights. Like, for example, where did the idea that every human being has certain rights, where did that idea come from? Ever wondered that? As has been shown by Dr. Brian Tierney and other historians, human rights came from Scripture. Truly, that's how they came here. And they really got into European law and European cultural institutions through the church and through followers of Jesus. Because those followers of Jesus believed that the imago Dei, the image of God, gives we humans a uniqueness, a worth, a dignity, and certain human rights. Okay then, so what happens when you have a secular society in which most of the cultural elite say, we don't believe in God anymore, and therefore, we don't believe in human beings being made in the image of God. We're simply just the result of random evolution alone. There is no God. Okay, well, one of the limits of science is that there's absolutely no scientific basis for saying human beings have rights and dignity and value. So if you don't believe in the image of God, then you have to ground human rights somewhere else. And that's why human rights are now grounded in what they call capacities. Because the secular argument would be that the reason a human being deserves protection rights is because human beings have certain capacities. For example, they have the capacity to reason. They have self-consciousness. They have the capacity to make moral choices. They know right from wrong. And therefore, they argue, because humans have these capacities, they're worthy of protection. They have rights. And the pro-choice argument would also then be that unborn children do not have those capacities. Therefore, they don't have human rights because they can't make choices. They can't reason. They don't know right from wrong. They can't live apart from their mother. They don't have these capacities. And therefore, since they don't have those capacities, they don't have these rights. Does that make sense? Okay, so here's the problem. When you ground human rights in certain capacities, if you can't protect the unborn, then you can't protect the newly born. You can't protect the mentally handicapped. You can't protect the elderly who are failing physically or mentally or enduring dementia. Because all of those groups have diminished or lost some or all of those capacities. And really, that's not overstating things, that's just logical. Okay, but if you go back to the beginning of the Christian church, here's what you see. 
in the Greco-Roman world of biblical times, you had slavery. You had terrible poverty. You had lots of abortions. It was very dangerous then, but it still happened. You had infanticide. In fact, it was perfectly legal, especially for girl babies, just to be left out to die from exposure. And then you took the elderly, you took sick, poor people, and you just let them die. That, that was all legal, and it was done all the time in that day. Okay, but then followers of Christ came along, and they believed in the Imago Dei. And because they believed in the image of God, first of all, they were totally against abortion from the beginning. I mean, if you believe in the image of God, you really kind of have to be. I mean, because if human life is good, then embryonic human life has to be good. And that's why abortion was universally condemned by the early church. In fact, Clement of Alexandria, he was one of the great early church fathers. He wrote, and this was around 200 AD, and, and said that abortion destroyed what God had created and it was an offense against the command to love your neighbor. And that teaching, really understand, it continued in the body of Christ for nearly 2,000 years. So the early church, they stood with one voice against abortion. But they were also against infanticide. They weren't just kind of a one-issue people. They cared for the poor. They cared for women. They cared for widows. They cared for the sick and dying because they believed there was a sacredness to human life. And so they stood out dramatically from their culture because of their belief in the Imago Dei and the sanctity of human life. Because when you believe in the image of God, the circle of protected life, it expands. But if you don't believe in the image of God, if you only believe in capacities or some other trumped up approach to why we believe in human rights, the circle of those rights will continually contract. It will get smaller and smaller and fewer and fewer people will be protected. So do you see how incredible, how crucial, impactful this image of God teaching is? So what if we took the image of God seriously? What if we did? First of all, regardless of what the law of the land says, we would know that abortion, except to save the life of a mother, that it's a violation of the image of God. And secondly, if we believed in the image of God, we'd say abortion is wrong, but also, friends, we wouldn't make people who have had abortions feel rejected, devalued, or unforgivable because they are equally valued and treasured by God. And we wouldn't be a single-issue people because we'd bore you We'd be for all the poor. We'd be for all the weak, for all the marginalized. We would be a very unusual community, wouldn't we? So let's be that. Let's be that kind of community. Two guiding principles from Scripture. Okay, so we take all that and consider. Okay, so what should our response be? What can you do in response to Scripture's guidance on this? Can I just share a few possibilities? For one, pray. Pray for God's wisdom to be known. Pray for pregnant moms and for God's protection over unborn children. 
pray for wisdom in how you can be part of seeking healing in this area. Secondly, serve. I mean, volunteer at a crisis pregnancy center and get into the lives of those in need. One of our key ministry partners here at Southview is Calgary Pregnancy Care Center. Maybe serve there. Third even, adopt. Perhaps consider adoption as a way to speak into this issue and care for others. And fourthly, I'd say share. By that I mean listen and speak out in conversations about these key questions and, and do it with patience, with compassion, with conviction and knowledge. And thirdly, let me remind us of the counseling option. If it would be beneficial for you to receive counseling for something you're walking through, can I invite you to just email us at care at southviewchurch.com. We'd love to help in this. Now, most of what we've considered to this point, it may feel like it's been fairly academic and clinical. So I really just want to close our study and really prepare for communion by speaking to those of you who are post-divortive. You know, in recent weeks, I've received emails from and, and talked with women in our own church family and women outside our church family who describe the difficult circumstances that they found themselves in and the choices they made. And one woman described what other women also shared about. Just the emotional scars they carry from the experience of going through an abortion. And, and she wrote this. The worst part was the total emptiness I felt when I got back to my car. I cried. I cried hard, painful, aching, body-wrenching tears. I would do this for the next six months until the pain, the grief, and the guilt got to be so much that I finally overdosed. Nobody tells the young moms this part. Nobody tells them the fact that no matter how long it's been, you will always remember and wonder and long for that child. So I deeply want you to know that God longs to embrace you and to wipe away your tears and that you are not alone. So please be assured of this. God is longing to forgive you, to make you whole again. God knows the anguish you feel. And the little ones, even those who have been aborted, belong to God. God will continue to take care of them. We don't know everything that God has planned for their eternities, but we can say that they belong to God. And we also know this. God understands the pain and the difficulty and the burden you might feel. And if you feel or are carrying feelings of guilt from an abortion in your past, God is saying to you today, I understand your heart. I know what happened. I am always ready to forgive. For that's why I sent my son to deliver you because I treasure you. And friends, this Jesus is present for each of us. For you who have done things that you wish you hadn't done, for you who have turned your back on him in the past, for you, he died. And for you, he waits to offer you grace, mercy, love, and peace.
And unexpectedly enough, one of the primary ways that Jesus expresses his grace, mercy, love, and strength to you is through this meal of communion. And so I invite us together, wherever we are, to be still in the presence of God. And we come together on behalf of all of us. I break this bread, remembering the body of Christ broken for us. And we look to the cup. And as we do this, we come and we ask, O God, our Father, would you in every place that we're gathered right now, would you feed us spiritually through this bread and cup? I pray you would express your grace, your love, your strength, your mercy as we receive this in Jesus' name. And so, friends, I invite you to come and take the bread that you have there. And if you would, let's pause for a moment as you take the bread. Hold it and be still for a moment. And here again, the body of Christ broken for you. Take and eat. And then with the cup, we come to it remembering and holding on to the reality that the blood of Christ was poured out for you. I invite you to take and drink. So, oh God, our gracious Father, we thank you you are with us. And I pray, Father, whatever each of us are walking through, I pray we would know your strength this week, your peace, your encouragement. I pray you would use this assault and light and encouragement to be your hands and feet in the world we live in through the power of your spirit. So guide us this week, I pray, Father, in the name of Jesus and all God's people say, amen. Amen. So glad we could be joined together, friends. And again, I invite you, if there's something on your heart you want to share, please contact us. You can call or email the church office to one of our pastors. We'd love to walk with you however we can. And as you walk into this week, whatever it does hold for you, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of his Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope this week in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So go in the peace of Christ. Amen.